Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. So during a children's sermon uh, one Sunday morning, a pastor named Glenn Schaefer held up an ugly shirt. He gathered the kids around him, he held up an ugly shirt, and he said, children, this is my shirt, and I want you to know somebody has criticized me for this shirt and said this was ugly and I ought to get rid of it. And I'm having a really hard time forgiving them. Do you think I should forgive them? And the children were gathered around. And one of the kids that were there was his own daughter, six-year-old Alicia. And Alicia raised her hand right away and said, yes, you should forgive that person. And he said, but my feelings are hurt and it's really hard to forgive them. Why do you think I should do that? And she said, Alicia said, because you're married to her. (laughs) You know, we have a lot of opportunities to forgive in life. Sometimes, some of you will remember a couple of weeks ago, I was, I was sick and I talked about, I talked about my unwanted and uninvited guests that just showed up at my house and barged in the door, Mr. Sinus. Well, thankfully, he, he's, he's gone. Um, but there are other guests that come to our houses at times, and we don't invite them. We don't ask for them, and we don't control when they come. And one of them is Mr. Hurt. Mr. Hurt just shows up. We don't ask for him to come, but he comes, and he comes to all of us. We have an opportunity in those moments to decide what we will do, and today we're going to learn about forgiveness. Now, what is forgiveness? Forgiven, let, me, let me talk a little bit about what it's not. Forgiveness is not pretending that nothing happened. It's not pretending that what happened didn't hurt. It's not forgetting. Wayne Grudem says personal or individual forgiveness is not holding a grudge or not cherishing bitterness towards another person and not harboring any desire for them to be harmed. The Journal of American Development says that 70, they did a survey and 75% of the people that were surveyed said they believed that God had forgiven them of their past sins and wrongs and mistakes, but only 52%, like half, said that they had forgiven others. And yet, when we, when we don't forgive, it just eats at us, and it hurts us more than it hurts others. As Anne Lamont puts it, not forgiving is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. 
Now, the Bible has a lot to say about this topic, including our passage for today, and I want to invite you there, Luke chapter 23, verse 32 to 49. We, in these days at Harvest, are studying the prayers of Jesus, the actual prayers that he prayed when he was alive and walking on earth. He's alive now, but he's not on earth anymore. But while he was on earth, he prayed, and we have record of some of his prayers. And we're looking at his prayer of forgiveness today from Luke chapter 23. And let me set the context. This is while he was being crucified, Jesus spoke incredible words of forgiveness to those who deserved it least. And that impacts us deeply today. Let's read Luke, just a couple of verses. Then we'll go back and we'll read uh, the whole passage as we go through the message. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals. One on his right the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. In this passage that we're going to look at today, there are two amazing expressions of forgiveness. And I want to walk through those with you today. And the first one is this. Jesus chose to forgive the very people who were mocking and killing him. That's an amazing expression of forgiveness. This was not just a small offense against him. The very people who were mocking and killing him, he chose to forgive them. So again, back in verse 32, these three, two, Jesus and two criminals, were led out to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, They crucified him there. The skull, it was called the skull because the actual hill where these crucifixions took place protruded out. It was a rocky place that protruded out and looked like a skull. In Aramaic, the name of the place is Golgotha. Later, in Latin, it was Calvaria which is where we get our term Calvary from. When we talk about Jesus' cross, we'll talk about Calvary. It was located on the north side of Jerusalem or outside the city. It had to be outside the city because both Jewish law and Roman law demanded that crucifixions take place outside the city. Quintilian was a first century Roman educator and a writer who was famous for his rhetoric. And he wrote this, whenever we crucify the condemned, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by the terror. So this was not something that happened way off to the side. This happened in a very visible place. So Many people could see it if, we were, if it were happening today, for instance, in Charlotte. It might be at where 77 and 85 come together. Without a doubt, one of the cruelest 
and most humiliating forms of punishment in the ancient world was crucifixion. What is crucifixion? It's when they took a mostly living person, although there were sometimes dead bodies, but mostly a living victim, and he was nailed or bound, sometimes bound, to a tree, a cross, or a stake, sometimes upside down, sometimes upright. The Jewish historian Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. Seneca argued that suicide was preferable to being put on a cross. And this form of capital punishment lasted for 800 years and thousands, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people were crucified. Both the Jews and the Greeks restricted it to slaves because they viewed it to be too barbaric for a citizen to endure. And as the victim suffered, the loss of blood circulation uh, culminated with coronary collapse would cause death, and it, it was a slow, agonizing death. It wasn't quick. Sometimes it took days for these victims to die, which is why... They would often come and break the knees, break the legs below the knees so that the victim could no longer gasp for breath. Now, in Jesus' case, he was practically dead before he was even put on the cross, given the scourging, the terrible scourging that the Roman soldiers gave him the day before. And how did he respond? How did Jesus respond to all of this hatred and vitriol and mocking and physical punishment? How did he respond? He said, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Those three words, say those with me. Those are just amazing words. Let's say them. Father, forgive them. Let's say it one more time. Father, forgive them. Now, normally in those days, when somebody was being crucified, they would typically lash out at the ones crucifying them with whatever energy they had left. They would threaten them. You can see Psalm 69. But rather than doing that, Jesus did exactly what he had taught his disciples to do earlier in Luke chapter 6, 27 and 28. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Sometimes people say, well, you don't know what they've done to me. Did they spit on you? Did they mock you? Did they nail you to a cross? That's what they did to Jesus. And he says, Father, forgive them. Now, who, who is he asking to be forgiven? I, I think it's all of his enemies. I think it's probably in the, in the most immediate sense, those who are actually doing it, the Roman soldiers who are actually carrying it out. They didn't know what they were doing in the grand scheme. But I think it was all of his accusers, and we're going to see that in the passage. It's, there's a big emphasis on how many different people mocked Jesus. But probably by extension, all the Jewish rulers and all the people that contributed 
to this because there are a lot of people wanting this. And he says, forgive, forgive. What, what does it mean to forgive? Well, let's define it. Let's look. The biblical word means to release. It means to cancel something, to set something or someone free, to remit or forgive sins. And it's a really interesting word study. If you take that original word and you trace it both in its Old Testament use and its New Testament use, we don't have time to look at a lot of them, but let's, I do want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 15 and see where uh, uh, you, this is very visible. It was in the, the law of forgiving debts every seven years. Deuteronomy 15, 1 says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel, that's the word there in NIV. ESV translates it release. Either one of them are appropriate. Every creditor shall cancel any loan that they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debt has been proclaimed. And this is the word that was used, for instance, when Jesus would say in Luke 11 in teaching them to pray, forgive us our sins as or for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Scott Winning says, forgiveness is a decision. It's an act of the will by the grace of God of God. To forgive, you begin to let go of the desire for vengeance. It means we don't try to get even. Forgiveness is releasing others. That's what we do when we forgive somebody. We're not just saying words. We're not just Oh, I have a warm, fuzzy feeling towards them. No, it's a conscious decision for us that we are not going to hold them any longer. And when people do us wrong, we hold them. We think about their guilt. We think about what they've done. We can obsess over it. We can go over it and over it in our mind, what they did, why did they do it how much harm they've done, this and this and this, and we can go like that and we can go like that and we can go like that. And forgiveness is when we say, you know what? I'm, I'm letting them go. <laughs> Lord, I am choosing to let them go. Now, here's an interesting point too. Did, we'll notice in this passage that the people Jesus forgave there didn't automatically repent and fall down on their knees and become reconciled to him. All those soldiers didn't say, yo, you know what? We're really wrong here. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Now, reconciliation is the ultimate goal. We want there to be reconciliation, but sometimes that's out of our control. Forgiveness is not out of our control. We can choose to release people. Now, back in Luke 23, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. <laughs> think, about, think about the groups. I've got them highlighted in the verses as it comes up. Think about the different groups that mocked him. 
Verse 35, the people stood watching, and the rulers sneered at him, saying he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. Now, when they use the word save there, they, it's not necessarily that they believe that Jesus uh, actually could forgive people or save them in the spiritual sense, but they knew that he was known for healing people and helping people. So they, it's like, oh, well, he helped all these other people. He saved them. Let him, let him save himself. So the people mocked, the rulers mocked. Verse 36, the soldiers came up also and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. This wine vinegar in verse 36 and 37 doesn't seem to be their desire to comfort him. It was a mixture of water, egg, and vinegar, and they gave it to him, I don't think, to relieve his pain, but to keep him alive so he would suffer longer. Verse 38, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. That in itself was mockery. They mocked. They knew nobody, a real king wouldn't be dying like this, right? So even that mocked. And perhaps the culmination of the mockery came from one of the thieves or the criminals that were right there who clearly deserved his punishment, he, he joined in the railing. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Notice the other criminal in verse 40. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we're getting what our disease, deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong and then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. This is another expression of forgiveness on Jesus' part. First, he says the words, forgive them. But now a specific individual criminal is saying, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And he just looks at him and offers him words of forgiveness. Yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. Well, what is this paradise? What, what, what is that? And where is it? It was a, a Persian word that was taken over into the Greek language, and it symbolized a, a place of beauty and delight, uh, like meaning a park or a garden. And Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 helps us understand that it is heaven that is being talked about. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, let's link when we think about where is paradise and what was Jesus promising this man. Let's link what happened in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 22. We're looking at Luke 23. We're looking at the crucifixion. But in the previous chapter leading into this, Luke chapter 22, Jesus was being questioned by the, the chief priest and the teachers of the law. And they were saying, are you the Messiah? Right? They, the, this Jewish council wanted to know that. And here's what he said to them. If I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you will not answer but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. 
In other words, Jesus is saying, you're not going to believe me what I tell you, but I want you to know that the Son of Man is not going to stay here long. He is going to be at the right hand of the mighty God. That's paradise. That's where Jesus was going. He knew it. He said it to them. And then when he was on the cross and the criminal says, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. He looks at him and says, yes, today you'll be with me in paradise. You'll be with me in the presence of God. You'll be with me in heaven. Now, some Jewish rabbis thought that there were levels of paradise, and it depended on what your station in life was and how deserving you were and so forth. One listed seven different groups of the righteous in paradise in ascending orders, but Jesus' words give no indication that this guy was going to be in a separate compartment because he just happened to be appealing to Jesus at the very end of his life. He just said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And that is the first amazing expression of forgiveness in this passage. Jesus chose to forgive the very people that were mocking and killing him. The second expression as we think about the whole passage and even as we hone in on the last few verses is that Jesus paid the necessary price for our forgiveness and access to God. Let's start at verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The darkness from from noon to three o'clock is a visual symbol from God about the somberness of this event. Darkness is often in the Bible an indication of judgment. Look at passages like Joel 2 or Amos 8. Maybe God was veiling the judgment that Christ was experiencing as he was paying for sin. Maybe he was affirming how much evil was involved in this activity. But it was dark. And then in the temple... (laughs) This is out at the skull. This is out at Golgotha. But in the temple, right there as he's dying, verse 45, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, there were a couple different curtains in there, but I believe this is the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. As you entered the temple, there were the outer courts. There were the courts of the Gentiles. The Gentiles could come into. You'd go into the temple uh, Area, and then you'd the priest would move into the holy place, and once a year, only once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place. And there was a huge temple that was at least 60 feet high. Josephus said it was 90 feet high and about 30 feet long. We believe it was at least four inches thick. It was this massive curtain, and right at that moment, It was torn in two. Now think about what that curtain symbolized. That curtain symbolized stay out. (laughs) You don't have access to God. 
You can't come to God. You can't say, man, I want to be really near God today. I'm going to walk right on into the most holy place. No. Access was limited to God. And I think it was a kind of a combo, actually. I think, I think this was partly judgment on the, the Jewish religious system that had put things in place that God had not designed, had gone beyond his, and not what was in the Old Testament, but, but the way it had been taken and used. And I think so this was God pronouncing judgment on, on, on that, but also saying, here is access. Here is access. Through the death of Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus Christ, I will forgive sins. I will give you access to God. In verse 46, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. It's another prayer. It's one final prayer of surrender to God the Father. And the intimacy there, he saying, Father. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this saw what, had, what took place, they beat their breast and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. Here's God's word for us this morning. Jesus' amazing forgiveness is a great model and our hope for salvation. What Jesus did on the cross accomplishes a couple of things. It's a model for us for how we can forgive others. And more importantly, it's our only hope for salvation. It's the way we can have access to God. You cannot have access to God by making up your mind that you're going to be a good person. Or turning over a new leaf or saying, I'll be religious, I'll stop doing X, Y, and Z, and I'll start doing this. I'll do all kind of kind things. No, we're sinful. We're separated from God. All of us are by nature and by choice, and we need God's forgiveness. We need a Savior, and that is who Jesus is. It's, it's a great model, but it's also our hope for salvation. Now, as we start to wrap it up, I just want to talk for a minute, a couple minutes about how this impacts us today, how Jesus, two ways that his actions impact us. All of us, again, will have Mr. Hurt knock on the door, or maybe not even knock on the door, he might even come in through the window. And what are we going to do? How are we going to deal with it? We choose to forgive based on God's heart, not our feelings or the worthiness of the offender. We really are going to get somewhere in forgiveness when we can come to this point. That we're not going to forgive based on how worthy that person is to be forgiven. Or how we feel about it. But based on the heart of God. And Jesus told us a story about that in Matthew chapter 18. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I, and here's the word, forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times. Now, the rabbinic teaching 
taught that you should forgive somebody three times, and then after that, you could take revenge on them. And so I think Peter thought, man, I'm going to really impress Jesus. I'm going to double what the rabbis say and add one to it because, you know, seven's a good biblical number, right? Seven times? Uh, No, how about 70 times seven? (laughs) Jesus says 77 times. Therefore, and then he tells a story. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Some of your translations might say 10,000 talents, right? How much money was this? More than you have, I promise you. More than you can imagine. And that's the point of the story. Um, Historians believe that during Jesus' time, the entire wealth of the whole Roman Empire was somewhere between four and 5,000 talents. So he's telling this story that this guy owed 10,000 talents. It's just a massive number. I mean, it's like the national debt. You know, you just can't get your head around it, right? That's how much this guy owed. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant uh, fell on his knees. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, and guess what word is used? (laughs) Here it is, canceled. He canceled it. He canceled the debt and let him go. You would think this guy is going to be the nicest guy ever from that point. I I just had 10,000 bags of gold that I owed and, and I got forgiven of it. So what does he do? Well, verse 28, when he went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 silver coins. All right, 100 silver coins versus 10,000 bags of gold. And then he grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay me what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. Oh, remember that's what you said? But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Some of you are thinking, ha, I'd never do that. Not so fast. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that happened. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I forgave, I canceled All that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Again, Scott Winning says, Jesus isn't saying that if you fail to forgive, you'll be thrown into a torture chamber forever. 
This is a parable. So Jesus is not completely like that person, but the point is this, and I love this statement he makes. Jesus is saying that forgiveness not shown means that forgiveness is unknown. Forgiveness not shown means that forgiveness is unknown. It reveals that we haven't received the grace and forgiveness of God the Father and reveled in it. So you forgive not because the person's worthy of being forgiven, not because you feel in a particularly forgiving mood that day or that month or that year. You forgive because of the heart of God the Father, whose heart is so rich in forgiveness. He told the story about the prodigal son, right, who had dishonored his dad, wished he were dead, taken his part of the inheritance, went and wasted it, and came back and repented. And the Father is so generous that he just runs. Not Oriental men didn't run like that. He ran and grabbed him and forgave him and he called his people let's have a big banquet my son is here prayer is an important part of forgiveness prayer is related to forgiveness for instance jesus said in mark 11 whatever you ask for in prayer believe you've received it and it will be yours and we go what a great promise that is awesome well the next verse says and and when you stand praying If you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. (laughs) So prayer helps us in the process of forgiveness. I don't know if you have. I know I have at times had, knew that forgiveness was the right thing, but I had to actually pray about it. I had to ask God to help me forgive. Like, Lord, I know you want me to forgive. I know I'm supposed to forgive. And so I'm trying to forgive, but I honestly need your help right now because I don't feel it. Can you relate to that? (laughs) Please help me to release them, Lord, when I'm not feeling it. Or maybe, Father, so-and-so really hurt me. I want to forgive them, but I need the grace that you can give to help me do it. And I think an interesting thing, this came up in our, in our community group Friday night, an interesting thing also to pray for is to ask God to help you see them, the offender, the way God sees them. Because when we're mad at somebody, when somebody's hurt us, we see them through a certain lens, right? And how does God see them? So that's helpful. The second way that this impacts our life, first is we choose to forgive not based on, or we choose to forgive based on God's heart, not our feelings or their worthiness. Secondly, stop trying to earn or add to his work of grace and start trusting (laughs) Romans 4, 4 and 5 says, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trust God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. 
We don't work for salvation. We don't work after we've received salvation for the purpose of just adding a little bit more to it. (laughs) We trust. Jesus' amazing forgiveness is a great model and our hope for salvation. So Henri Barbusi tells of a conversation that was overheard in a dugout full of wounded men at the end of World War I. And one of the men knows that he's about to die. He knows he's just got minutes left. And he looks to one of the other men who hasn't been wounded, apparently. And he said, listen, Dominic, you've led a bad life. Everywhere out there at home, you're wanted by the police. But there are no convictions against me. My name is Clear. So here, take my wallet, take my papers, take my name, my identity, my life, and quickly hand me your papers so I can carry all your crimes away with me in death. And that is analogous to the offer that Jesus made for us. He had the good name. He was perfect. We were condemned. And he said, you know what? And it wasn't an accidental death. It was an intentional death. I'm going to die. Let's, let's change papers. You can take my identity. And I'll take yours. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.